Okay, good evening and welcome. Uh, my understanding is that uh, there's a certain faction of people here who are chronically late, and so we'll just uh, get things going while they come in. That's what Manjul tells me. Thank you for uh, all coming out tonight. Um, uh, I should explain my presence here. Although this is a public lecture in mathematics, uh, I am not a mathematician. I'm, my name is Sam Wong, and I am on the public lectures committee. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce this lecture, which is co-sponsored by the University Public Lectures Committee and by the Department of Mathematics. Um, and these are uh, lectures that are open to the whole Princeton community, and I'm very pleased to have this as our first lecture, which is co-sponsored, as I said, by math and public lectures. Uh, my main official role here is to tell you that this is co-sponsored by a fund endowed by Mr. Lewis Clark Vanuxum of the class of 1879. And Mr. Vanuxum made his uh, fortune and uh, career in insurance law, but he left a bequest specifying that there be a public lecture series, the majority of which be in uh, subjects of scientific interest. And over the last hundred years or so, Vanuxum lectures have included um, Lord Robert May, Matt Ridley, Roger Penrose, Jared Diamond, and Antonio Damasio, and also Edwin Hubble, James Conant, and uh, Carl Sagan, so many, many eminent people of science. Um, so uh, tonight, it's my honor to introduce the introducer of Professor Lenstra, and I'm here to introduce Professor Andrew Wiles. Professor Wiles himself is a noted number theorist. Uh, he's uh, famous for a certain theorem that was uh, uh, too big to fit into a margin, and he certainly demonstrated that was the case. Um, but in addition to that, Professor Wiles is uh, Professor Lenstra, one of Professor Lenstra's hosts, and he's chair of the math department. And I should also say this lecture was proposed by the math department in part due to the introduction of a new general audience mathematics course for undergraduates called The Magic of Numbers, and that's taught by Manjil Bhargava and Leonard Eng. And so there are many students from that class, and I welcome you all to this public lecture. So here's uh, Professor Wiles. Thank you for that introduction, and um, welcome to all of you. Hendrik Lenstra's specialties are in algebra, number theory, and algorithms. Wonderful choice. He's best known for introducing advanced techniques in the areas of computer security and cryptography. Two of his best known results are what are known as the triple L algorithm and the elliptic curves algorithm for factoring. So, Factoring big numbers has become a very important national security topic in the last 10, 20 years. And if you have a big number that happens to have a small factor, then his algorithm is the best. And by small, I mean, say, the factor, prime factor, should be around 60 digits, apparently. <laughs> but for a, bigger than that, I'm afraid it's still a big problem. Hendrik Lenster uh, has received a number of awards, including the Fulkerson Award of the American Math Society and the Mathematical Programming Society, and the Spinoza Award, which is the highest scientific honor given by his home country of the Netherlands. At one time, he was a professor at Amsterdam and at Berkeley. He is now a professor at Leiden, and this year, received an academy professorship from the Royal Dutch Academy of Science. A great pleasure to welcome Pro Professor Hendrik Benstra. Yeah, thank you very much for that beautiful introduction. It is a real honor and a pleasure for me to be able to speak here before you in this lecture series. I definitely hope, however, that the larger part of the pleasure will be yours. So, let me start by explaining the title of my lecture. Escher is a Dutch graphic artist whom I will have more to say about later on. Let me start with the Droste effect, but before I do so, I would like to stimulate your feeling that this lecture hall tonight will be turned into a movie theater by starting with the credits. <laughs> Escher, I mentioned already, 
code on art likes to be mentioned because they owe the copyright to all of the works of Escher, including those that I will be showing. Bruno Ernst wrote a book on the mathematics behind Escher's works, still in print, at least in English, not in Dutch. It is called The Magic Mirror of M.C. Escher. And this book contains some of the key hints that led to the work that I am talking about today. But the Smith, well, if you decide that you want to remember a single name from this lecture, in addition to Escher's and my own, then <laughs> it should be Bert de Smith, because he made essentially all of the images that you will be seeing, and if you like them well, then you should be as thankful to him as I am. Richard Groenewegen also made one of the pictures. Joost Batenburg, he's played a very special role. He's a mathematician now at Antwerp. He is a Dutch mathematician. When he did his work, he was in his early years. And uh, I will have occasion in this lecture to refer to what I will call the bread and beer method. Sometimes we would have a certain problem that we could solve simply by computer work. So we would open up the computer and drop the problem in there along with Joost Batenburg and feed the appropriate amounts of bread and beer into the computer and after a while the solution would come out and after inspection we would also let Joost out of the computer. Hans Richter and Jacqueline Hofstra, those are the two starving artists who contributed at a crucial point that I will mention to our project Doug Orgren, well, we never met him in person. This is uh, the OA, that is the Swedish-speaking academy in Turku in Finland. When the entire screen turns pink, then you will be looking at his software. Leonard Buitenhek and John Voigt, they are the computer gurus in Leiden and Berkeley, respectively. And Spinoza, well, his name is attached to an award that I got, and uh, it provided the entire project with the necessary pocket money. Okay, so much then about the credits, the Droste effect that does require some uh, explanation. Here you see the screen turning green, uh, pink I mean, and there you see the Droste cocoa package, that is Droste that is a manufacturer of cocoa in the Netherlands and it gave its name to the Droste effect, which is a word in the Dutch language that is found in all of the dictionaries, and every Dutchman knows what it means. When I check it in a foreign language dictionary, it, I usually find some very lame translation. In English, the translation is illusion of infinity, and, well, maybe that is exactly the illusion that you will have when you look at this particular animation. We will encounter the Droste effect in the works of Escher at several points later in this lecture. Okay, so after this triumph of the Dutch color printing industry, let's pass <laughs> to the next image. This is just a newspaper clipping, one among many, which shows that the word Droste effect in Dutch is also used in a figurative sense. This, it says the Droste effect in the stock exchange, and the news is that the German stock exchange was quoted at the stock exchange. And the article makes a comparison with a dentist drawing his own teeth. <laughs> so if you decide that the word Droste effect is an appropriate one to use, in this context, then you see that you can also adopt the figurative meaning in English. Here's the butter that I used when I lived in California with a Native American lady kneeling in front of a lake with the package that you are seeing holding it in front of you. This is not the example that I will elaborate upon later in the lecture. I will talk about a French one, La Vacherie, the laughing cow, uh, cheese brand from France, and you see the cow laughing, and you also see why he is laughing, because on one of his ears there is the very same package hanging. Another example of the Droste effect. For the purposes of this lecture, it was, however, definitely impractical that 
the package hanging on the ear was seen in perspective. So what we did is that we slightly tilted the picture so that both the package that you see and the one hanging on the ear have the same oval shape. You also see that this package is apparently lying on some sort of reddish-brown pillow. I don't know whether any of you can guess <laughs> what pillow this is. <laughs> that is something that you should always realize when you see these Droster effects, that the infinity effect goes in principle two ways. It is not so easy to actually buy such a Droster package. You have to fight with the nurse first, and in this case, with the car. Okay, so much then for the Droster effect. Maybe I should point out here for this one that we see here an example of the Droster effect that is a little different from what we saw before in the sense that we are not just zooming in or out, but at the same time, we are rotating, we are turning around. That is something else that we will see later in this lecture. Okay, so much then about the Droste effect for the moment. And next I would, just those of you who don't know him already, give you a brief introduction to Escher, the Dutch graphic artist, born in the late 19th century, died in the early 70s, and famous for the types of works that you see here, Day and Night, one of the early works, a woodcut from 1938, typical Dutch landscape by day and by night with the birds in the sky. Here you see one of the repetitive patterns. You will see a lot of repetition in this lecture. Here you see one of his studies, his fish tessellating the two-dimensional plane. There you see the waterfall. Actually, we found a version of this on the Internet that may be interesting for you to watch. It is not one that we made ourselves, but certainly indicates the sort of games you can play with Escher. But most of my attention this lecture will be devoted to the lithograph that you see here. It is dated in the middle, from May 1956, and it is called Print Gallery. It is a lithograph. If you don't know what a lithograph is, then, well, Greek, lithos means stone. A lithograph is printed from a stone. Here you see the original stone on which Escher drew the image with some special stift, some special pen, in mirror image, and about 150 copies were printed from it during his lifetime. After he died, a big cross was drawn through it so that no future originals can still be printed. This stone is in the possession of an Escher collector living in Connecticut. This photograph was taken in his attic by Bert de Smit, whom I mentioned before. Okay, there we have the print gallery again. As I mentioned, it is signed in the middle. Many people, the first thing they see when they see the print is this blank spot in the middle, and they wonder what it is doing there. Well, it is just making space for the monogram, which is in the stone, and the date, and the signature of Escher, which is in pencil on top of the completed print. So the 47 Roman II means that this is the second series consisting of 47 prints, and this was number 20 of the second series, and it passed Escher's inspection, and he signed it. I think it is hardly necessary to point out the paradoxical character of this print. The print gallery, you enter it on the lower right, and as you go through the print gallery through the, to the left, everything is expanding. At a certain moment, you reach the person of this viewer who is of a much more gigantic stature than the viewer near the entrance. This 
viewer watches a print, actually, not a print of Escher, a woodcut that he made in the 30s, a woodcut that he made on one of his travels of one of the seaports on Malta, which you see here, the boat in the harbor and the buildings in the background, and everything expands. You see also the shape of the frame expanding. The buildings in the seaport, they expand, and as you keep going down on the right side, the buildings expand, and one of them turns out to be the original building through which we entered. So this viewer is watching a print on which he appears himself. Typical implicit infinite repetition, since of course the person he is viewing is himself viewing a similar print and so on. A lot of material has been preserved that gives us insight into how Escher made this print. This is a grid, this word roaster in Dutch, that is Dutch for grid or for lattice, and it is not the type of graph paper that you just get at the stationery store around the <laughs> corner. Escher made it himself, and he made it according to specifications that I will get to later in this lecture. You see that it wasn't easy for him to meet them. There's a piece of paper glued on top of it, and if you look at the backside of the same sheet, which is again in the possession of the same Escher collector, then you first of all see this Dutch phrase. It says backside, just to be sure. And then he is also, you see all the glue there, and you see all the redrawn lines and the abandoned efforts. Here you see one of the other studies that Escher made in the process of, of making his lithograph. That is just the same print gallery, but now there's nothing about it that is expanded or distorted. It is perfectly straight. The only thing that is not straight is this curved line, which represents, as it turns out, the frame, the outside of the final lithograph. So if you distort the lithograph so as to make the representation straight, then the edges become curved. But of course, Escher himself went in the opposite direction. This is only one of the studies. We took this from the book by Bruno Ernst that I mentioned. This is another study that we didn't see when we were doing this work, and I think it is unpublished. You cannot find it in any of the books about Escher. We photographed it again in Connecticut, in the collection of the collector. Here we have the person standing who is not in the image, but you see also the lithograph on the, on the wall. Maybe I should also point out something that is coming back later. All of these pictures on the wall, they have in this study the shape of a pure parallelogram, with the exception of the one that you saw a moment ago in more detail. The angle here is not a straight one, but the angle there is actually a straight one, as you can also verify here, you have a right angle here and here. It is not right. So that is an indication that Escher was just mildly cheating in making these studies, but in the final product that is as good as invisible. The fourth study for the top right corner of the final lithograph, you see here all the buildings, and then you go to study number five, going to the lower right, then you will see that it is exactly the same as study number one. Okay, before I show you how you fit all these studies together, let me also tell you how you use them along with the grid in order to make the lithograph. Here you see the grid again, and here you see a section of the grid, so maybe should point it out here, it is this section here, which is a little bit like a one by six rectangle. Here you have something that is more or less convincingly a square. There's a neighboring square that is a little larger, and it keeps getting larger. It gets a little bit more distorted. It gets so large that it is subdivided four by four, and here you have the final square of the six, which is so large that one of the 16 little squares making it up is actually, when you measure it, of the same size 
as the one that you started from. So if you look at the expansion factor in the grid going from here to there, the expansion factor is a factor of four, and you keep going around, another four, another four, and another four. If you go around full circle, then the total expansion factor is four to the power of four, which is 256. So that in case you wondered how large the expansion factor was. Here you see the one by six rectangle that I just pointed out to you, and here you see a section from the straight study of Escher. There the rectangle is a pure rectangle without any distortion of one by six, and what Escher did is that he would take those six squares and expand them one by one, the elements of the drawing that you find in there one by one to, the, to fit the curved lines. He would do that for all the little squares that you see in order to transform the straight world of the studies into the curved world of the final lithograph. That is what he did with this study for the lower right-hand corner. For the lower left corner, he would use the next study and so on, fitting everything together. Here you see another study of Escher, which was important for us because it contains both the elements of the final lithograph, the viewers and the building and everything, and the basic elements of the grid so that we had exact information on how the grid was to be fitted onto the picture. Ontwerptekening, it says here, that, so that is the design of the drawing. One thing that puzzled me very much when I first saw this drawing is why it was not drawn in mirror image because Escher had to draw the image on the stone reflected in mirror image and the study is actually not in mirror image and the answer to this is perfectly simple I don't know whether it occurs to any of you actually I gave you a hint already this is transparent paper you can just turn it around and you see the same thing But at any rate, this study enabled us to reconstruct the studies from the lithograph. So we, what we did is that we performed the process applied by Escher in the opposite direction, straightening the curved world rather than curving the straight world. And what we did is that we didn't make four studies, but we made 400 of them. And when I show them to you in quick succession, then it creates the illusion of a moving image, an animation, but you have to really imagine that you are looking at one picture here, just like the Droste image at the beginning, and I am just zooming in so that you are in a position to appreciate the fine detail in the center. And by the time it has zoomed in, by a factor of 256, you are back at the very beginning where we started. So this is just a perfectly plain and conventional Droste picture. The main difference with the original Droste picture being the size of the reduction factor, which is 256 as opposed to about 12 for the original Droste package. What you also see in this picture, maybe I should stop it at a certain moment, which gives rise to an interesting optical effect. It seems to be moving backwards for a short moment. You see here the image of the person viewing the print on the wall, and just a few meters away from him, there are two people on the, on the street, and you see that they are drawn about the same size, well, this person you certainly remember, those two you probably didn't see on the lithograph, they are drawn, well, they look like straw puppets, they hardly have any resolution at all. They are drawn very close to the, to the white spot in the middle, and they are tiny, but you see that the scaling works out perfectly. This round spiral, that is what remains after this straightening out of the... So it's a spiral going towards the middle. That is what remains of the circle, the blank circle in the middle, whereas this more or less straight line here with a right angle there, 
there's not a right angle. That is what remains of the outside of the print. As I mentioned before, several people had expressed dissatisfaction with the empty spot being in the middle and wondered whether there was a way of filling it in. Then you stare at these images, which I should emphasize, they are Escher's bits. We didn't intervene other than through the bread and beer method that I referred to before. We just threw all of the material along with Joost into the computer, and this is what came out. If you view at these images, then you realize that filling in the white spot in the middle is in a sense equivalent to filling out the empty space outside the print. I don't believe that there is any artistic objection towards a print having bounded size and stopping somewhere. Nobody ever expressed dissatisfaction about the print gallery being incomplete in that direction. But... I am not here to pass aesthetic judgments. I will just talk about the mathematics of filling in these, this spot. And from that point of view, it is indeed, as we will see, equivalent to fill it out towards the outside or towards the inside. Okay, so let me say a little bit more about the mathematics that we applied in this context. And I will show you a few images in which you always see the straight world on the left and the curved world on the right, so that you see the relation between the two. And I will apply to these images a few transformations, you might say, or a few considerations that are taken from a part of mathematics which is called algebraic topology. So here you see the grid, the straight squares here, and the curved squares over there, simplified version of the grid on top of the pictures. Here you see an image that you saw before with the one by six rectangle, both in the straight and in the curved version. And in our current images, I show that with these dotted lines so that you see what corresponds in one world to a given figure in the other one. And rather than thinking about this one by six square as an area, I'm not thinking of it as a line, the edge, as a loop that encloses a certain area. So here you see that if you walk around this area, this walk corresponds to walking around the area over here. And you can also do that with smaller areas, then the figures are more convincingly the same. You can also attempt to do this with larger areas, and then you see that there will be a big difference. This little square just gives you a little square here. If you take a big square, however, then what happens in the other world is that you, more or less surprisingly, do not get a closed loop at all. This one, the big square, it ends up where it started, but here, if you follow the lines that we had before, and then if you go up here, everything by that time has been expanded by a factor of four. So in the straight world, it is four times as small. Here we have a six, there we have a one and a half. And one and a half divided by four, that should be about three-eighths, I guess, of that square. And then you go down by nine over 64. So the point where you start here is very different from the point where you end up. But nevertheless, if you follow the image in a purely continuous way, you see a column here at the start of your journey. There is also the column here. And at the very end, you also see a little column there. It is the column that you find on the representation of the print gallery on that print hanging on the wall. So in other words, if you... If you would mark these points here, then at this point and at that point you find, so to speak, the same pictorial elements in the straight world, and here it is just the identical point. Here we have, again, the little squares that we started from, and as I showed, it makes a big difference when you enlarge this square so that it 
encapsulates that it goes around this vanishing point. You can also do the same with this one. You can make it go around the vanishing point. You can first make it approach the vanishing point, and then you have this rectangle of uh, 5 by 4, and here it is, well, not quite a very straight rectangle, but it is still a recognizable shape, and at least it is a perfectly closed figure. Yeah? So you 4 up, and you go to the left and make another 5, and then 4 down. Every time you make a, a left turn, you count down the appropriate number of rectangles, and this is what you find. But if you make the rectangle here a little larger so that the vanishing point is enclosed in it, then again the thing bursts open. So here you go up by five, you go up by five here, just count the little squares. You make left and you count seven. You do the same thing here, you end up there. You repeat this with another five and another seven, and you find yourself this time in the curved world at a different point. And you see this column here, it is standing there. Of course, it is still there when you go around. It means that also in the curved world, you should have a repetition. There should be a little column sitting there in the middle, or not quite in the middle, but near the middle of that white spot. So what you find at this single dot here, you find both of it at the two dots over there. Now, there was something that we were a little bit puzzled by when we thought about this. Namely, you can do this not just when you start from here. You can also start at other points. And, in fact, I marked them here with some other colors, green and blue. So here we have this straight line. We divided it by two to four. And that is here almost an equal division, the green thing in the middle. The red one here is supposed to be the same as the one over there. The, same, the blue one, for the same reason, will give you the same over here. So this, this, this uh, part of his belt is also sitting there. And uh, the, the green point, which is all near some other column sitting on top of some print, will again be found here. And you see that this entire line is found back here, except it is turned over. It is turned almost completely upside down. We did some measurements in these prints, and we discovered that the reduction factor is about 20. This is about 20 times as short as that one, and the angle is not quite 180 degrees. It is about 160 degrees. And that is something that we found a little puzzling, because in the straight world, well, we knew there was a Droste effect, and the Droste factor, the zoom-in factor, was 256, there is no 256 to be seen anywhere. And instead, there is a number together with an angle, a number which is about 18 or 20, and an angle that is about 160 degrees. Mathematicians combine numbers and angles into complex numbers, and we wondered which complex number are we talking about in this particular picture, and what is the relation of that complex number to the number 256 that we started from. Well, to solve that problem, we went back to the Escher literature. Here you see some pictures from the book by Bruno Ernst that explain how Escher constructed the grid. Ontstaan van het netwerk, that is the way the grid arose. And in the accompanying text, it says that Escher first tried to make this grid using straight lines. It's talking about this idea. That is the idea of the circular expansion from the context from which it is taken. But then what he did was that rather than use the straight lines from the top picture, he was somehow forced into curving them. And this force was exerted by two elements, so to speak. First of all, his intuition. He had a little angel sitting on his shoulder telling him to curve his lines. But there was also a mathematical reason, namely he wanted that the original small squares could better retain their square appearance. So what this means, you can sort of see from the grid, the, I already mentioned that this square here, it is actually pretty convincingly square. It is only when you enlarge them that they are a little distorted. Then when you look at an small scale, an infinitesimal scale, you might say, then these things are actually 
pretty convincingly square. There are some areas of the network where that is less true. For example, here in the middle of one of the edges, the little squares, they look more like diamonds. Well, I already referred to slightly cheating here, but his stated purpose was to keep these little squares square at an infinitesimal level. And that is a notion that has been very well studied since about the middle of the 19th century in mathematics. People, well, mathematicians would express that by saying that the transformation expressed by this grid, this transformation back and forth between the curved world and the straight world, that this transformation is a conformal transformation. And conformality, as I mentioned, is a very well-studied concept. So we just took the appropriate books from the shelves and we started determining our complex number. I refer to a complex number. Yeah, popular math lectures are not supposed to contain formulas, but this is a compulsory lecture for the students from the magic of numbers. They have to be exposed to formulas. So I am compromising a little bit here. And after all, some of you might enjoy formulas. So here you see a complex number which is made up from all the things that you like, if you like mathematics, like logarithms and i and pi and x, and of course the 256. And this complex number is a number that represents uh, something that has, a, that has an angle of indeed almost 160 degrees. And the scaling factor, it is not quite the 18 or 20 that I mentioned, it is more like 22 and a half. And that is what you would get if you would make your grid perfectly conformal. I should mention that all these numbers, so the 22 that should represent the ratio of this edge of the square here and the edge of the little square in the middle, and the 157 degrees should be the angle between those two edges. If you measure them, then, as I pointed out, you get slightly different numbers, but that is because the grid of Escher was not perfectly conformal. If you draw the perfectly conformal grid, that is the picture made by Richard Groenewegen, whom I mentioned at the beginning, then you get a variant of the grid which is more regular. All of the squares are now exactly squares. There are no little diamonds anywhere. And it is instructive to compare that to the grid that Escher made, not by applying exponentials and logarithms, but just by trial and error, by essentially following through the proof of these theorems on an experimental basis. I think what strikes you, should strike you most about these pictures is how similar they are, how well Escher was able through his trial and error method to approximate the unique conformal solution to his problem, but you will also see that there are certain areas where he, so to speak, got it wrong, at least not in accordance with his own stated purpose of conformality, and that is towards the outside. The curves here down, they curve first up and then down and then up again, and here it is down and up. So here it is first convex and then concave. Here it is first concave and then convex. So towards the inside it is correct, but towards the outside you get a problem. So that suggests that it actually may be harder to complete the Escher picture towards the outside and towards the inside, and that is why we decided to work with our own idealized version of this Escher grid. There is also a way of turning all these mathematics into perfectly straightforward directions for the artist, and in order to see how the artist should start from the straight world and transform it to the curved world, it is convenient to add another layer to this, which is what we call the logarithmic world. So here we see the straight world. You see, this is sort of a schematic, draws the picture. If you zoom in by a factor of four, you have the same picture. The same is, well, not quite the same, but something similar is true here. This is the curved world. Going from the straight world to the curved world, you pass upstairs. And the relation between a picture up here and the thing sitting down under it, it's the same relation here, that is what 
people call logarithms or exponential. So what is happening here? Well, here we have the number one. In the middle, I didn't mark it, we have the zero. The one has a logarithm, which is zero, that is sitting there. If we count zero, one, two, three, four, four corresponds to the number here, which is the logarithm of four. The logarithm is, of four is about 1.4. We should always be taking natural logarithms here. You see that is the corner of this shaded rectangle, which has a different shape here. If you take the number zero from the middle and you take this half line going off to infinity, then the logarithms will be this entire line. So here you have the logarithm of four. There you have minus the logarithm of four, which is the logarithm of a quarter. A quarter is a number just sitting a quarter of the way between zero and one. So that is the distance from the origin here is measured here by this x-coordinate, as people would say. The y-coordinate, if you go up and down here, that corresponds with an angle down here. So, for example, if I start at zero and I go straight up, then that corresponds to this horizontal line here. It borders this rectangle at that particular point. So, here, this angle of 90 degrees... It should be measured in radians, corresponds to this distance. 90 degrees is pi over 2 radians. Pi over 2 is about 1.6. So this is 1.6 as opposed to this 1.4. It is a little taller than a square. And if you take, for example, this horizontal line halfway through, which intersects all those heavily drawn lines under an angle of 45 degrees, that corresponds to the diagonal here, which intersects, indeed, those lines under 45 degrees. The fact that we took natural logarithms and radians, this combination of way of measuring things, that guarantees that this transformation is conformal, that it preserves the angles and that the little squares remain little squares. So that is a logarithm, and this arrow is exactly the same as this one, except that the one on the left is easier to explain. Okay. Now, I, I should also point out that this map here on the upper left, it has two symmetries. If you shift it over a distance, left or right, of the logarithm of 4, the picture repeats. And that shift corresponds to blowing up this, fact, this picture here by a factor of 4. If I zoom in by a factor of 4, the whole picture remains the same. That corresponds just to shifting back and forth. You can also shift up and down over a distance pi over 2 that corresponds to turning this one around over 90 degrees, which is another way of making the picture repeat itself, keeping it completely invariant. Okay, thanks. <laughs> you see that this one has also a rotational symmetry of 90 degrees, which implies that this grid, the logarithm, has also this vertical symmetry. If you shift it up and down by this same pi over 2, it repeats. And in order to make these two, two sort of related to each other, we force this simply by rotating this picture by an angle which is about 40 degrees, so that this point will be vertical. And we also shrink it a little bit so that the position occupied by this pi over 2 over here is now occupied by that point. So you see that if you have this shift and that shift, you have also a diagonal shift that makes the picture repeat, and that corresponds to a vertical shift here of the pi over 2, and that is what gives rise to the rotational symmetry here. So you see that this transformation from the straight world to the curved world in the logarithmic world that just comes down to a transformation that people call a complex multiplication, turning it over some angle and slightly shrinking it. And that is something that you can easily catch in terms of formulas, and any artist nowadays should be able to do his own Escher transformation in that manner. Okay, so if that was not enough mathematics for you, then you can look at an issue of the notices of the AMS, April of 2003, where you find all of the explanations, including the connection with elliptic curves. So 
That was the mathematics. When we tried to bring this into practice, we generated a whole lot of images. If you like to see more images and more explanations, here you have the website. The address is up there. If you forget it, you just type in Escher and Droste and Leiden and Lenstra, and then you will find this website. The first thing that we did is that we had one of our two artists that I mentioned at the beginning redraw the studies of Escher. As I mentioned, Escher was slightly cheating because his grid was not perfectly conformal. Ours was completely conformal, so we wanted to avoid the cheating. You see the print drawn on here has a perfect parallelogram shape. There is no right angle to be seen here. Also, he had to complete in these studies some elements that we couldn't find in the Escher studies because they would fall inside the white area in the middle of his lithograph. So our artist, Hans Richter, he could add some Escher prints of his own liking. Here he put the Möbius band here. Uh, our other artist got very nervous about this because he said, well, this print is from 1956 and the Möbius band was made only in 1962. It couldn't have been there. <laughs> this is one of the studies that Hans Richter made. When you zoom in, you see some of the others. They are perfectly straight. Four of them. And number five is the same as number one. Okay, so that was just the straight world, a traditional Droste picture, not with a factor of four like here, but with a factor of 256. So the next step that we took was take the logarithm, and the logarithm of what you saw a moment ago cleaned up slightly, that gives you this picture, a line drawing. So here you see the head, the hair of the viewer, this distance is the logarithm of the blow-up factor, the logarithm of 256, which is about five and a half. That is the horizontal repetition in the logarithmic world. There is also a vertical repetition here, which is a rotational symmetry, because any picture at all in the world, if you turn it around over a full circle, over 360 degrees, then you look at the same picture again. And that in radiance is 360 degrees, which is 2 pi. 2 pi is about 6.3 as opposed to 5.5. So that was our grid. The next step, which is mathematically completely trivial, took us about a year to take in a satisfactory manner. It was more an artistic problem and maybe also a problem of computer graphics. It was just adding the gray shades, but it made a big difference because it led to our award-winning wallpaper design. <laughs> and maybe I should emphasize that this is where the intervention of the artists stopped. Our second artist, Jacqueline Hofstra, she did the shading, and all the rest of what you will see is taken from here by just the bread and beer method, just <laughs> appealing to the services of the computer and the student. Well, this picture should at least convince you that in the logarithmic world, the levels correspond to the angles. If you look at this level, everything is perfectly straight up. Whereas if you look at this level, if you want to see everything straight up, then you have to put your head on your left shoulder. And when you straighten it up again and put it on your right shoulder, then everything here will be straight up. It's sort of a dangerous experiment <laughs> to see this straight up, but you see everything here is purely upside down. So that is the wallpaper design from which everything else is taken. Here you see the corresponding thing for the Droste package, the vertical distance is still the 2 pi, the 360 degrees. And here you have the logarithm of the blow-up factor, the logarithm of 12, which is quite small. It is maybe 2 and a half or so. La Vacherie, the laughing cow. The vertical distance is again 
2 pi, 6.3, 360 degrees. There is no horizontal distance because if you blow it up, then simultaneously you have to rotate it. So this vertical distance is 90 degrees. That is a quarter of the 2 pi. That is pi over 2. And then you have here an enlargement factor of about 20, about logarithm equal to 3. So that is what the laughing cow looks like when you subject it to a logarithm rather than turn him into cheese. <laughs> okay, so that was the logarithmic world. I don't think you turn cow to cheese, right? Well, anyway. <laughs> Before we go to the curved world, which is where we really want to be, let's go back to the straight world so that you see what we got there. And here you see an animation that is very similar to the one that I showed you at the beginning. It is just conventional Droste picture with a zooming in factor of 256. But the big difference is that at that time, at the beginning of the lecture, you were staring at Escher's bits, and here you were looking at our bits. Here you see, what you, there you see the Möbius band again passing by, and our artist, well, he added some boats and a tourist and a tree. He also added a building without a door. We put him, told him to put a door in, at least. <laughs> and everything, as you see, has been cleaned up a bit. Okay, so that is down here. Now, in the logarithmic world, we can pass through here, but I decided to skip that step because it just means tilting your head a little. You have enough practice with that. So let's pass to the curved world down at the right, and there you see our remade version of the print gallery. And as you will see, all of the elements of the original picture are there, but there is one new thing, namely the center has been filled. And if you want to see the center a little close up, then indeed you will see the person standing there, well, hanging there, I might say. <laughs> he is, so that is by an angle of about 20 degrees from the vertical, and he is uh, 22 and a half times as small. And if you compare our picture to the Escher picture, well, you will see several slight differences apart from the empty spot being filled in. The most obvious difference is that the curving of the lines towards the outside is in the opposite direction. If you look at this, you see also that our person is slightly leaning forward, whereas Escher's person is slightly leaning backwards. Also, the columns in Escher's picture, they are sort of stable, whereas ours do more justice to the region around Malta being earthquake sensitive. <laughs> okay, but for the rest, it is perfectly similar. I think that the Droste nature of the picture is best appreciated again by an animation by zooming in, but as with the laughing cow, at the same time rotating. So that after it has rotated by 157 degrees and zoomed in by a factor of 22 and a half, you are exactly back where you started. Yeah, some people think that this makes a good screensaver. <laughs> In our guest book on the website, someone noted that he stared at this for 10 minutes and then he went to bed with a heavy headache. <laughs> Here you see the Droster picture, when you subject it to a similar transformation, which I find 
a little bit dull in comparison, so let me instead go to the laughing cow. And it is maybe of interest to see that you can modify this a little bit and have him tilt in the opposite direction. Sort of a Bambi. <laughs> Let me quickly leave through some related images of Escher that give you a feeling how you can modify these things. Here you see Escher's very final work, snakes. Three snakes, you can take the logarithm. Now the three snakes together, they will have a vertical distance of 360 degrees again, except that you cannot see from this picture how many snakes there were supposed to be. Maybe you have to take four snakes. So if you, if you forget about this, then you will reconstruct Escher's work like this. Or you can say that there are five snakes. It is all from the same logarithmic picture, except that you decide your 360 degrees to stand for different vertical shifts. So here you have 12 of them, and there you have infinitely many of them, which is the logarithm. You can also take two snakes, or you can take one snake. <laughs> Zero snakes is a little difficult, but I can actually give you minus one snake by turning the whole thing upside down before I do this. And then you see minus three snakes, minus six of them, minus two. Okay, that was minus one snake. So that gives you an illustration of the freedom that you have when you pass from the logarithm to the straight world, and that is what you will find illustrated in this final set of pictures. As I told you before, the whole point of this transformation in the logarithmic world is to make sure that this point ends up at the position originally occupied by that point. And there is no real reason why it has to be that point going there. It could have been that one or that one or that one or any of the other red dots then you, that you see when you extend the picture in all directions. So that gives rise to an uh, infinite sequence of such grids, which actually were displayed on the poster for this lecture. And if you use those for making additional um, Escher prints, then you see images as the one over here. So this is just turning in the opposite direction. And, well, it may not be as nice as the original Escher print, but certainly it has the same... Structure, you see someone looking at the print with buildings and he is just standing on the own print, except that the, it goes in the anti-clockwise direction rather than clockwise. So that is what you get here. You can also use one of the other red dots. And here you see another version of the same idea, all made by pure bread and beer work. Squaring algorithm, what you see in the middle is a ramification point, as mathematicians call it. For this one, it was not important to start from a Droste picture. You can square any picture in the world. So that is our opera ceiling, <laughs> suggesting to me at least that we should one day have a colored version of the Escher print. One of my friends said that this reminded him of the Paradiso of Dante. Well, everybody his own paradise. <laughs> Here you see one where the Droste factor is very large. It is about 1,200, which means that at any given moment there is not much that you see. But when you wait long enough, then you really see everything there is to be seen in the picture. It will come by at one particular point. So the next one is the one where you have to fasten your seat belts. <laughs> because here the whole picture is turned inside out. It is mapping a complex number to its inverse. All the straight lines have turned into circles. You, here you see the frame of the print. 
the print itself is outside the frame. It is the original way of framing prints rather than inside. <laughs> no hope for those of you who enter here. But the one that I like best myself is just the original one. I thank you for your attention. for that wonderful lecture and those brilliant images. Uh, hmm, right. Oh. You want to be talking to them. Thank you. So Professor Lenstra has agreed to answer questions if there are some and I hope we have a moving mic somewhere. Yes. Yeah. So if there are any questions... Is there any way of getting the uh, screensaver? <laughs> um, ah, you want to have the other one. Well, I, I think you will see it also in a moment in this one. This is actually sort of interesting to watch too. I'm trying to recall uh, about the history of conformal maps. And the, if Escher worked in the 17th century, could you compare that for us with the history of when people first began to understand conformal maps and maybe talk a little bit about what mathematical ideas were really in existence at the time that he did this work? So, um, so Escher was active in the 20th century, eh? not in the uh, 17th century. We have many famous Dutch artists well represented. Uh, that's also wrong, but I'm sorry, I apologize. Okay, good, good. I'm trying to understand what ideas existed that he would have had access to. So Escher uh, was not a trained mathematician. Escher did not finish high school and even though his father liked him to go to the technical university in Delft, he really couldn't. So Escher had sort of um, a lifelong frustration with not being able to satisfy the expectations of his relatives. None of his relatives liked his work, by the way. They literally said that he was designing wallpaper patterns. So Escher had... Uh, was more sort of a, a, a raw mathematician. He would like the same things that mathematicians would like, but he would not be able to express it in their own language. And the, the communication between Escher and the mathematicians was notoriously uncomfortable. Escher just reinvented for his own purposes what he needed. He was not aware of the existence of the theory of conformal maps. And had he known of this, well, the whole effort that he spent on this, and he's complaining about this in his diary, the effort it took him to design this grid, it would have made life for him much more pleasant. It would have... Yeah, he could just calculate it. Well, in those days, you didn't have very good computers, but just any logarithm table would have helped him. Uh, mathematicians, they saw this uh, actually when the International Congress of Mathematicians was held in Amsterdam in 1954, 
then there was a, uh, on that occasion there was an exhibition of Escher works organized in the City Museum of Amsterdam, organized by the mathematicians, and Escher was just incredibly proud of it. The mathematicians would look at it, and that was two years before this one was made, but when this one was, got known to the mathematicians, well, the mathematicians dragged enter into Escher into a lecture room in the mathematical center in Amsterdam, and they tried to explain to him in their own language what he had done. And Escher well, sort of was very proud, but nevertheless, he was inclined to find a way to the door. <laughs> but he was very pleased by this. Yeah, 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 sure. So Escher likes things to be straight in the part of the print that is most visible. Yeah, so he starts from this square and then he starts curving the lines from there. Whereas our starting square is itself curved. And that is, of course, an artistic requirement and we are not solving artistic problems, we are solving the mathematical problems. done with print gallery and with the snakes, how many other Escher works uh, have you uh, given the mathematical treatment to? Yeah, uh, well, this is the only one that I have worked on. Um, I really do not know whether the question whether, so given an Escher work, is there an interesting mathematical theory behind it? I do not know whether this is a decidable question, it, it, because part of it is working in your own mind. And I found it for studying this particular print very difficult to turn it into a, a, a question of mathematics. I sort of felt that, you see, I am by, my, by training a pure mathematician myself. And here I had a feeling that I was more of a physicist. I was exposed to nature in the person of Escher and I had to find a mathematical model that would that would uh, describe it to, to a certain extent. And I was trying to actually come to grips with it by formulating a, a real question. No? It was like a yes-no question. How do you test whether you understand the picture? So I was trying to imagine, for example, that I had some newborn Escher walking into my office hour and asking for advice, look, I have this problem of the circular expansion and how do I do it mathematically? Well, I didn't think that that was a very precise question. The precise question that made me finally understand this, that was the question what this number that I called gamma was actually equal to, the, the exact value of the angle and the exact uh, value of the reduction factor. That was a purely mathematical question and as soon as I had posed it, I had almost immediately answered it. But it was sort of a laborious process that went on for several days. If you take any Escher print, well, you can start staring at it, but I do not know when you will stop staring at it. <laughs> No more questions. Maybe we can thank the speaker again for a wonderful talk. <laughs>